Can you guess what these three social media posts by complete strangers have in common? When orange is the only LaCroix flavor left in the fridge. I'm really craving sushi, but my favorite place won't take credit cards on delivery. Just cash. The struggle is real. And the problem is towels just aren't nice on the washing line. It's like drying yourself with cardboard. The common link between them all is a pretty obvious one. When we look at things that may seem like real issues, but let's be honest, they aren't really. All of them use the hashtag FirstWorldProblems because they recognized just how minuscule their problems were. For everyone that's on the podcast today, they recognize those too. Partly because they've seen the challenges that other people face in various parts of the world. Problems with enough food a decent education, a culture of rape, or just straight-up desperation. I'm Andrew Campbell, and on today's Food Bubble, we visit with three people that are helping farmers in various parts of the world as a means of trying to rebuild communities and give them a real shot at improving their circumstances. The question, why would you travel to Kenya to help a group of farmers when you've got your own farm to worry about at home? Or why start an egg farm in a country with a quarter of the population is orphans? Or how do you get a country that imports 99% of their milk, usually powdered, to become one that can give children a glass of fresh milk to improve their cognition and development? It's a fascinating journey around the world. That's where we'll start right after this. Trillium Mutual Insurance is your ag insurer of choice in Ontario. They're farm insurance professionals who specialize in and understand Ontario agriculture, providing insurance solutions that are the best in the industry. We all know that insurance can be complicated, but does it have to be? Their real Ontario farm insurance brokers make it simple for you, providing the coverage you deserve. To find a broker partner near you, please visit their website, trilliummutual.com, and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium mutual. Our first story begins with a farmer near the town of Listowel, Ontario, west of the city of Waterloo. Stuart Skinner and his wife Jess had both done trips to eastern Africa. Stuart, through a Kenyan that he'd heard speak, went there in 2013 to do some agricultural extension work and help with a political campaign. Jess had been to Tanzania when she was in university and both couldn't help but be drawn back for some more work in 2015, primarily to address an issue around milk. One of the biggest issues that they had is nowhere to sell their milk. In 2013, everybody sold their milk to uh, guys on bicycles at the end of the road kind of thing. And, and there was no price transparency. There's all kinds of issues with marketing milk. So in, um, in the interim between 2013 and 2015, had worked with uh, an entity um, called Kenya Kids Foundation and they actually got a, a very significant um, gift from the Gay Lee Foundation to give a couple co-ops interest-free loans to purchase uh, milk tankers so that they could start bulking their own milk. And so when we went in 2015, it was largely doing business training with leadership of the, of the co-op. So um, it was kind of funny. This past trip, there were still um, a couple of the co-op guys, like staff people were uh, still using spreadsheets that Jess had built uh, four and a half years ago. Stuart was back a few weeks ago, and of course part of that was to see how things were progressing since his last visit in 2015. 
Stuart, with this co-op model, are farmers getting more for their milk versus what they were when they were merely selling to someone on a bicycle at the end of the road? They are getting more. How much more is, is it de- kind of dependent on a few different variables? But actually right now they're, they're getting significantly more um, than the, the local market is paying. So they, they're getting paid about the equivalent of about 35 cents Canadian a litre um, for their milk. Um, whereas the, the local kind of the hawker market or the cash market, if you will, is paying about 25, 26 cents. And that is really a, a large product of, of the further processing. They're selling milk um, and yogurt to direct versus selling to a processor. And, uh, and that's the area that will continue to grow because the spread between retail and, and what the farm gate price is, is, is pretty significant. But just collecting that milk to sell as a co-op is just the beginning, isn't it? In the last six months, they've started um, further processing. They've got a pasteurizer and they're making 300 uh, liters of yogurt a day um, that they're selling in, into the local retail markets. So yeah, there's been, there's been definite growth. There's nothing is linear. Success is not linear. The challenge, actually, while we were there this last time, one of the challenges was the, the hawker market, that's the cash market, was actually paying more then the co-op could pay um, because there is such a, a, a shortage of milk right now. So at the, and they actually literally sell milk door to door kind of thing. So they are, they are facing increased pressure from hawkers um, right now. The challenge is, and they've got a, I'd say about two thirds of their leaders are firmly committed members that kind of stay within thick and thin. And then they do have to deal with the transient dollar chasers as well. Um, that and that is a challenge and then it's exacerbated by the by the drought that's going on right now so that obviously puts them in a tough spot right now but looking back over the last few years what have you seen as those farmers have started working together in this co-op model one of the easiest or most tangible things to see is is the little village where the where they sited the the cooling station with the dairy coolers and the pasteurizers and and then now a feed store it that's become a community hub and when I was in there in 2013, there was nothing more than a, a, a couple collections of huts, like very, you wouldn't even call it a hamlet. Um, and now uh, here in 2019, that it's a village of almost a thousand people. Like it's just created this crazy community hub. There's, there's a bar, <laughs> there's, every, there's everything you need, Andrew. There's a gas station, a bar and food. And none of that was there even in 2015. Um, so there's been an amazing little, a spur of, of local development and, and the co-op <clears throat> is a hub because people are coming there every day with milk. Um, there's a feed store there. There's a couple, I, I wouldn't call them grocery stores, but like smaller uh, food vendors. There's a brand new gas station and, and the roads have been improved. So you're, yeah, it's, it's, you see the development right in front of your face compared to a couple other villages um, that I've spent time in, in in my in my visits that haven't really grown all that much at all. Now, when you went this time, Stuart, you took your friend Jen, Dad Larry, and brother Donald. What else were you working on? Well, so this time, like I keep one of the beautiful things about the internet is um, is you can talk to people in Kenya really easily. <laughs> so I, I keep in contact with with a couple um, people that I, I would call friends. And last fall. Um, they started talking about wanting to diversify beyond just dairy. And there was some interest in getting into poultry production. So the main goal with this trip was actually to help them get a pilot project to test viability of, of raising, of raising uh, broiler meat. 
And, but part of that to be successful, we felt was having good nutrition. Um, Cause one of the challenges with feeding a, a broiler versus their domesticated chicken is their domesticated chicken forages for a lot of the food. Um, you can't put a, you can't put a Ross chicken out and just say, Hey, go eat some bugs and grow uh, at your, at your 1.5 feet conversion and become 2.6 kilos overnight kind of thing. So Donald was with us and, and he works in livestock nutrition and he did a lot of legwork before we left uh, chatting with people in the, in the nutrition business, but also just, you know, the wisdom in his mill uh, where he works at Moser farm supply on design. And they took a, they took a design of a mill from, essentially a, a very similar mill that's used in Molesworth. It's a two ton blender and, and they kind of just shrunk it down. And with the help of YouTube showed a, a fabricator kind of the design and they made a, a miniature version of that two ton mixer that'll mix batches of a hundred kilos of feed. With a pilot project like this, is there a small group of farmers that are going to start to grow on the poultry side? They actually, so two things on the feed front, it's not just poultry feed. Hopefully for the long term, they're looking to try to, there's actually no feed facility in this particular area, which is wild considering how agricultural it is. Um, so they've, the farmers, the larger farm group there has, has been hungry for some more corn processing because um, they're always selling their corn out of the, out of the area and then buying back in feed. Um, so there's hope that over time the co-op can, can expand their feed offerings and, and perhaps capture more margin out of feed. On the chicken front, um, kind of structured it, Similar to the model here that our business uses and, and other businesses in the pig industry and in that the co-op actually will own the chicken and the feed and then pay a contract fee to the, to the co-op members for caring for them. Stuart, we've all seen the ads or on the news and know that there's a lot of struggle in other parts of the world. Most of us at most might give 25 or 50 bucks if we feel moved. What makes you not just go to Kenya to start projects like this, but keep going back? That's a good question, Andrew, and it, and it can actually be a very frustrating place at times, um, especially if you look at things kind of from the top down. Like the the corruption, the corruption in my in my view has actually gotten worse um, since I started going there. The there's just so many politicians that have absolutely no moral. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to use polite words for public uh, consumption. Um, to to describe how grossly some of the the leaders steal from their people on a regular basis. For me, I guess my the underpinning piece for me that makes me want to keep going back is is because I don't come at it from the top down. Um, we're at the bottom up, and I just I don't know. I feel a certain sense of well, to be perfectly honest, responsibility or to to keep going back. I, I credit my, my trip there in 2013 with really helping me for, to use a cliche, turn my life around a little bit in, in terms of discovering how to be a better person. And, and, I, and I owe a lot of my personal growth to this area. And so out of that has been born a, just a feeling of not, not, and not in a negative connotation or responsibility, but I just, I just feel a connection to this place and I, and I want to keep going back and I, I want to see farmers succeed. It doesn't matter where you're farming. Um, we all share the same goals. Uh, and, and it always becomes apparent to me that we do share the same goals when you sit around the table and have a cup of tea together. Like everybody is in the business of trying to raise food to sell food so that they can send their kids to school and give their kids a better life. And that's, 
really when you boil it down, that's no different than what we're doing here. Now, if you go south from Kenya, down the coast through Tanzania and Mozambique, you get to a small country that's inland between Mozambique Channel and South Africa's Johannesburg. Eswatini, which is the new name for the country you may recognize as Swaziland, and certainly the way Tim Lambert tells it, is a country facing enormous crisis. Eswatini is one of the countries in the world hardest hit by HIV AIDS, and as a result, they, they have lost or are losing much of the adult population. So out of a country of a little over a million people, roughly 250,000 uh, of those people are, are orphans. And there's something like over 16,000 orphan-headed households where you've got uh, a child, whatever age, 10, 12, 14 years old, looking after several siblings uh, in their in their uh, in their homestead. And so uh, you've got this unique combination of devastation by HIV AIDS and a huge malnutrition problem. You heard that right. A quarter of the population is orphans. Tim is the CEO of the national organization representing egg farmers in Canada. So we heard about this story and had the opportunity uh, because of our connection uh, with uh, Egg Farmers of Canada as a member of the World Egg Organization. We had a conference in Cape Town. And so we had an opportunity to go on to uh, Eswatini to see the project, and we were just absolutely amazed at, at the progress that they had made and what they were doing. Uh, at the time, they had a little, little over 100 children. Now it's home to over 220 children. Uh, they supply or, or employ uh, about 300 locals and various looking after the children, uh, because while the children are are there, they're they're raised in in Eswatini culture, uh, taught their language, uh, but they're educated to to uh, Western standards, if you will, and the kids are not adopted out; they're raised to adulthood, um, and then um, they. They have this feeding program to support a network of 30 churches and schools. Now, Tim, let's start at the beginning of this project. What's your and the Egg Farmers of Canada's involvement in Eswatini? We heard about uh, this Canadian couple, and their names Ian and Janine Maxwell, that had started uh, an orphanage in, uh, now it's called Eswatini, at the time was called Swaziland. Um, and it's a very unique uh, set up because it's it's a home for abandoned children it's not uh, a home where just necessarily the parents may actually be alive but the children have been abandoned in some pretty horrific ways um, you know in ditches in plastic garbage bags left in dumpsters uh, it's it's really really uh, incredible level of, of need and the orphanage is uh, sits on a 2500 acre farm and so one of their needs was to be able to uh, feed themselves and feed the children um, but also uh, because of the need in Swaziland feed uh, distribute food through a network of 30 churches and schools the primary diet for Swazis is ground maize corn and very very low nutritive value so not only is malnutrition a huge problem in the country but protein deficiency is a is a terrible problem, and 
And if children don't get adequate protein as they're growing and developing, they'll never really be able to reach their full human potential. They'll just be stunted both physically and, and mentally. And so we saw an opportunity to engage as Egg Farmers of Canada in building an egg farm on the 2,500-acre farm. And so we did that with the with uh, a lot of fundraising work through Egg Farmers of Canada, uh, through our connections internationally. We were able to bring in some other partners, the International Egg Foundation being one, and and now we have uh, an egg farm that has two two barns of 2,500 birds in each barn, uh, so 5,000 birds, and we feed roughly 4,500 hard-cooked eggs every day. Tim, you mentioned the 250,000 orphans in the country, a quarter of the population. Is that all the impact of HIV-AIDS? If you go back, uh, I'm not sure the exact time frame, but if you go back 25 years or so, 30 years, the average life expectancy uh, of a Swazi was probably 60. Uh, now it's 29 years of age is the average life expectancy, and it's it's all as an impact of the impact that HIV AIDS has had. And the other thing is with that, because you've got then these orphan-headed households, um, there's a belief in their culture that, um, you know, you can be cured of AIDS if you sleep with a virgin. And so that leads to problems with rape and trading food for sex. And and so you, you just have... Uh, there's nothing that can be done to save that population that's already affected, but certainly we can we can help that country rebuild uh, through the next generation. The organization Egg Farmers of Canada is a huge help on this, Tim, but as individual egg farmers, are there any helping there too? That's been huge um, because they've got the expertise. They know how to, how to produce uh, eggs properly, and so... What they did was not only fundraise all of the money that goes into the project, but then they volunteered to go over and and do the knowledge transfer because a big part of this is, of course, teaching people how to feed themselves. And so we've had a stream of volunteers over the last number of years go over and spend a, a couple of weeks, three weeks, working directly with the team that cares for the birds uh, in Eswatini and and teaching them how to look after them, how to feed them, uh, how to recognize disease, how to how to optimize production, how to manage biosecurity, uh, food safety. It's been uh, it's been a complete team effort, if I can say it that way, from from our farmers in Canada to go over and and. And make this work. You really had to start this from the ground up in terms of where do you get chicks to raise to laying hens, where do you get feed for the birds, all things that we take for granted. You also used expertise from other countries so that you could deliver hard-boiled eggs since they're so much easier to deal with and eat for everyone rather than having to do something with a raw egg. I'm wondering, though, you've been doing this for four years now. That isn't a long time when you talk about the generational impact you really need to have in a situation like this. But are you starting to see any impact at all now? Oh, it's, it's, it's dramatic. And in so many ways, um, you start to see, like on site, because now these kids that are, that are, uh, that are orphans living on the site, you just see 
absolutely normal, normal from a development perspective, healthy, happy children. Um, and you and you really hear very kind of heartwarming things. So uh, a lot of the churches and schools, they say, you know, the difference it's made in their communities and for those children has been phenomenal. And they said to us, uh, we went out uh, once uh, that we were there and, and the community leaders were saying many people, many organizations come here and they say, you know, they're going to help and they say they're going to engage and they go away and we never see them again. They said egg farmers have come in and delivered delivered what they said they would do. I don't want this to sound the wrong way, Tim, but as heartwarming as it is, I mean, we are talking about some major investment in infrastructure, in knowledge, heck, in travel time that you guys are making. Why are egg farmers so invested in a country on the other side of the globe? Well, one thing that's really central to our business model, even, I would go that far, is this notion of a belief in our product. So the, the quality of protein in eggs, the nutrients in eggs, make it one of the, if not the uh, highest value whole foods in terms of nutritional value. And so we have a internal culture of, of being involved in community. Uh, so we're really involved in food banks, uh, really involved in school breakfast programs here in Canada, and it just seemed like a natural outreach to get involved in supporting development projects globally. And and it's really very much a kind of a core philosophy we have that doing good is actually good business and that uh, if we believe in our product and we believe we can help, then we ought to do that. From Iswatini, we head across the Indian Ocean, over Indonesia and Malaysia, until we reach the Philippines, a country that by economic standards is the furthest developed compared to the other two we talked about. But violence continues to be a major issue, along with unemployment, drugs, corruption, and many more issues. Yet despite those challenges, Deb Stark was recently there with a delegation of Canadians to talk dairy. At this point in time, there's... Domestic supply of milk feeds about 1% of their population. And their government has said, uh, that's not good enough. We can do better than that. And they want to grow that to 10%. So the Philippine government is making huge investments, and they have a a multi-pronged plan in what they need to do to basically build a dairy industry in the Philippines. They are eager for more information. They are eager to um, build capacity. So the model that they seem to be embracing in the Philippines now is a cooperative one where the group of dairy farmers would get together, put in expansion, possibly even put in their own processing capacity, and then serve their regional or local community around that. Deb's background involves being the top bureaucrat at Ontario's Ministry of Agriculture and before that as the chief veterinarian in the province. So obviously a wealth of experience to tap into. Deb, why are they so keen and so aggressive for an expansion in the dairy sector? I mean, going from 1% to 10% might not sound like a lot, but for a country with over 100 million people, that's enough milk for millions of people. Food security, one of them. Um, trying to switch their, they, they are very dependent on, on uh, powdered milk and trying to switch, so nutrition-wise, to fresh milk. And one of the elements they have is going to be a school milk um, program 
that they're trying to switch over to, to fresh milk, so to improve the nutrition, and then uh, economics. So why why not have that um, money stay in the country? The Philippine population is growing. It's one of those Asian countries where the population is growing, and, and they're trying to grab a piece of that, as they should. Now, given that leap, there's going to be a lot of huge hurdles for them. What sticks out for you? Part of it is uh, certainly getting the building a dairy industry, quite frankly. And uh, there's uh, quite a focus on the farmers and um, the getting cattle, and they're interested in bringing in good genetics and bringing in uh, really good cattle and, of course, being able to house them. But one of the things that we were uh, struck with is they need to also grow the support around it. For instance, there are no dairy veterinarians <laughs> because there are no dairy herds. It's kind of you know self-evident when you say it, but um, so having that kind, of, there are, the nutritionists um, are far more comfortable doing rations for swine and poultry than they are for for cattle. So all those kind of supports that need to come along when you grow an industry, I think, is one of the one of the challenges. They've got a lot, a lot of uh, little farms, and they certainly need to um, have some of them consolidate, I think, a little bit, or expand their herds, probably expand their herds and work together more. Cold chain is a real big issue for them. Uh, so quality, because of that, is a problem, because they don't actually have, they don't necessarily have uh, coolers on their farm. Right now, those who take their milk, take it to a processor, and, and you can imagine the, the quality issues around that. You don't necessarily appreciate all those very basic things that farmers might have here that they need to think about. We were talking to this one a woman, and there were a lot of women um, farm operators there, which was really encouraging to see. And she was one of the ones that was very interested in expanding, and she appeared to be very progressive. And she was talking about maybe, um, you know, she would, she would like to build a barn. So one of the things they don't have is they don't have a lot of barns, and so the Philippines is very hot, and uh, so a, um, good facilities is going to make a big difference for them. But she kind of said, so I don't have a vet, and when my cow dies, I can send it, I can take the samples myself and send it to the lab, but the lab doesn't have the equipment to actually do anything with my samples, so what do I do about that? So building that all at the same time, because as I say, it's quite logical that you wouldn't have a you wouldn't have a dairy veterinarian when you don't have a dairy herd. So you, so how you put those all together is the challenge. And then the same thing on the processing side. So they don't have the processors there right now. They need to build all that. Now, this is obviously really early on for them, Deb, but if we were to look into, into a crystal ball and figure out how this does help, what does helping their dairy farmers do for their communities and for their country in the long term? I think two things. One is going to be that economic growth and, and that moving moving them along the economic scale from, you know, four cows to maybe 40 cows to 400 cows. That, that's going to change the, uh, the value in the community and that's going to have a uh, impact on their community just like it does anywhere else when there's a healthy business. And then there is that nutritional side of it. And so they do want the milk to kind of stay in the region and feed their children. There you have it. Three stories that, if nothing else, certainly make me appreciate all the things we have available to us here. But beyond that, provides so much inspiration to just why so many farmers and farm leaders travel halfway around the world, sometimes multiple times, to help build up another farmer.
Want to know more about where your food comes from in Canada? Farmfood360.ca gives you a 360-degree view of Canadian agriculture. There are dozens of videos featuring real Canadian farmers answering your questions about food, farming, and how it's all connected. You can even take virtual tours and see exactly what it's like to live and work on different Canadian farms. To learn more about Canadian agriculture, visit farmfood360.ca. Next time on Food Bubble, if you were to Google the word farmer, what would you see? I find some straw and cowboy hats, some overalls, a heck of a lot of plaid, and men, all men. But that isn't what the picture actually looks like here in Canada. In fact, over a quarter of farmers are women. We break that Google stereotype and find out from women who are running farms just what the challenges are, that it's a growing site and trend and why they do what they do. That's next time on Food Bubble. Food Bubble is produced by Jess Campbell, Ashley Ferrero, and Jess Nicholson. We put it together here at Fresh Air Media. If you've got a question about food or a story you think needs to be told about the food chain, we are all ears. You can hit up the contact page on our website, which is thefreshair.ca, or I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all as the handle Fresh Air Farmer. So by all means, I'd love to hear from you there. And while you're on social media, we'd love it if you'd share a post or two about what you've heard. It helps in a huge way to get more people talking about everything there is to think about food. Of course, anyone can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and dozens of others, so the new episodes drop automatically into their feed. Thanks for listening. We'll visit about food again next week.